Welcome to the My Life is the Medicine podcast, where we get off the never-ending search for more and take an inward gaze to find how our lives have already taught us profound truths. Rather than turning outward to experts or gurus, we talk with ordinary people and reflect inwardly about the life journey and everything felt, thought, and experienced along the way. Join us in casual conversation and reflective dialogue to discover how simply living a normal life, reflecting on our own life experiences, has already given us all the expertise we need. Hosted by Chuck Hancock, an ordinary human who has lived life in many roles, like psychotherapist, software engineer, school teacher, orphan, adoptee, father, brother, mentor, coach, ceremonialist, and more. Chuck is a weaver of wisdom from modern day psychology to ancient wisdom of indigenous and European roots, creating alchemy from everyday modern American life. Hello and happy new year. Welcome to the first episode of the second season, second year of my life is the medicine. And we are starting off in January here with this topic of origins. The beginning of the year, we're at zero again. This is the time of year everyone wants to start over and start anew. And in some ways that's true. But in other ways, I think that we forget that where we've been and what we've experienced so far are still a part of the equation. And so in this episode, I'm going to talk a bit about my own origins and how that's impacted me and the choices I've made and the things that I've sought in my life and ways that it's both hindered me and given me skills and experience. And I'll invite you to reflect on your own origins. This is a good time of year, a good process to really reflect back not only on where you want to go, but where you've been and where you came from. So I'll pose this question to you at the beginning and invite you to just reflect on it in your own time after this episode. But what is your origin? Where do you come from? Whether that's your family, literally your birth story, like I'm going to talk about a bit in my own experience here, your cultural origins, your geographic origins. In my opinion, in my experience, all these things really matter. I think that we like to pretend that they don't matter. There's this cultural orientation towards let's just forget about the past and let the past be the past. And again, I don't think that there's anything wrong with that mentality because if we get stuck in dwelling on the past, then uh, we're stuck. Um, but I think we do have to hold both ends of the polarity of the past is in the past and it still informs how we are today. I think this is especially relevant in today's culture. There's a, so much more awareness of trauma and triggers and uh, expectations of being trauma-informed and not triggering people or upsetting people, which I think is great to have awareness and empathy and, and not try to continue to blame and shame and traumatize people when they're recovering from difficult life experiences. And at the same time, I think we can get a little confused with what is healing, what is possible, how do we actually live in a good way based on the traumatic experiences that we've had. I was working with a client recently and spontaneously this example came to mind that you know, let's say I was in a car accident and my left arm got damaged. You know, there's varying levels of trauma that can happen with that damage. You know, maybe some physical therapy can bring it back to good as new, but maybe not if the damage is really severe. 
maybe physical therapy helps regain some degree of functionality. And then we have to learn to compensate with, okay, I just don't have the same amount of functionality in my left arm or my left hand as I did before the accident. A lot of life experiences, especially traumatic life experiences, are like that. We do get changed from the experience. And pretending that we're not, I think, is denying reality. So keep that example in mind as you think about your own origins and how they've shaped you and maybe ways that you've learned to compensate from those experiences, maybe ways that you've healed fully, but also ways that maybe you're still being impacted from those experiences. Because I believe that that's really true. The body remembers. The body keeps the score is the title of a very popular Bessel van der Kolk book these days that a lot of people have heard about. The body remembers what's happened. And our psyches do as well. So with that in mind, I, I want to invite us all as we talk about and think about our own origins, individually, culturally, to not try to eradicate those past experiences, like some people want to forget about past experiences and forget about past traumas. And we do have that ability, both intentionally and unintentionally, to forget, uh, sometimes called suppression or repression. And we sometimes unintentionally forget. Um, and Sometimes with trauma work, people get so focused on, I'm going to heal this trauma and get past this so that it doesn't exist anymore. And I've grown skeptical of anyone that says, oh, I've worked through that and I'm totally healed. It doesn't impact me and affect me anymore. Again, back to the car accident example. Um, someone who's done that, you know, maybe cutting off their left arm or just pretending that the left arm doesn't exist anymore and only using the right arm all the time. So I mean, don't misunderstand me. I don't believe that healing can't happen, but let's not confuse healing with an unintentional severing or forgetting. Anyway, enough of that metaphor. Let's talk about orphan origins. So some of you have listened to me talk about this a little bit in the past, past episodes, and it's the beginning of every episode when I lay out some of my identities and, and roles in the world. I mentioned being an orphan, and, and so why do I do that? Well, first of all, I'll say that it probably was until my mid-30s, several years into being a practicing psychotherapist, before I ever wanted to admit that being adopted actually really did affect me. Because part of the narrative of my family was, oh, you're one of us. It doesn't matter where you came from. We love you. And that's all that really matters. And as a child and teenager and young adult, I really believed that story. Partly because it was what I was told, and partly because that was much easier than actually facing the impact of what it meant to grow up without any connection to my birth family, a birth mother, a birth father, the cultural identity of which that uh, lineage came from. Most of my life, I always had this experience of not belonging, not fitting in. And so I went from group to group, sometimes job to job, uh, before I finally settled on being a therapist. But even after being a therapist, I've gone from group to group, community to community, psychological theory to th psychological theory, looking for where do I fit? What really feels true? Where do I belong? And this jumping around and seeking has paid off a lot in that I've learned a lot along the way. But 
this is one of the main identifiers that I've learned really comes from my orphan origins. To put it really childlike, there's a book, um, I forget who the author is, but it's called Are You My Mother? And I remember reading that to my son one day when he was probably three years old, four years old, something like that. And I just started crying and I really just started thinking about, oh yeah, this is what I've been doing. I really recommend that you read the book if you haven't, but if you haven't read the book, I'll just briefly mention that the story is about a mother bird who flies off and leaves an egg when she goes to find food and the baby bird wakes up and feels like he doesn't know where he is, doesn't belong, doesn't know where the mother is and goes off on this search and encounters all kinds of different animals. And each one he asks, are you my mother? And eventually he comes to find out that, you know, he is loved by his mother and mother was just gone for a little while. But I really saw myself in that story. And maybe you yourself or some people that you've known in your life have done a similar thing. Um, not necessarily going literally asking, are you my mother? But have also done what I've done, looking for community to community, spirituality to spirituality. People hop from yoga to Buddhism to shamanism to Christianity to Sufism to atheism and back and forth between all those things. Those are the ones that I've been aware of a lot in our culture here in Colorado, at least. And really, I've come to see this as a seeking of like, what makes sense? Like, what's the philosophy? What are the rules for life? What brings some level of meaning or peace or understanding or what doesn't? It could be a rebellion against uh, some of those practices if, if you grew up in a very fundamentalist house like I did as well. But it all is a, a search for who are my people and where do I belong? That's the origin story that is missing for so many of us. And of course, I actually did have a family that did love me. My mom and dad absolutely did love me. And so it wasn't like I was really missing uh, the mother figure. Uh, she very much was in my life. But there was still something out of sorts. And I think that's true for a lot of people that I've worked with over the years, even people that did have a connection to the biological mother and father and had a relatively normal suburban Western upbringing, still also feel this seeking, this out of sorts, this uh, psychological and spiritual, are you my mother? Where do I fit and where do I belong? I've come to recognize this as potentially an impact that most of us actually are not growing up in the land in which our ancestors lived. Unless you are full-blood Native American, you have some part of you that was born and raised in a place that was not your home. Unless you think that this is not important, there's been many studies over the years on how say famine can affect people's uh, digestive systems and trauma, of course, can affect people's nervous systems. People that have grown up in highly traumatic environments are more prone to anxiety and hypervigilance. These events do get passed through our DNA. It's part of evolution, nature thinking that will make humans that are able to survive a little bit better if they're able to deal with the difficult circumstances that they grew up in in their environment. But it also has the side benefit of really skewing our psychology and 
when we think that we are individuals that are totally disconnected from our past and our ancestry, we get these symptoms that really don't make any sense. I have no reason to be afraid or hypervigilant. I live in a totally safe place. So why am I still anxious and hypervigilant? And mainstream therapy tries to attack that with tools and resources or medications without looking at the bigger picture of why this is actually an adaptive trait. Back to my own story, you've also heard in past episodes that I spent a lot of time seeking out indigenous ceremony and got connected with some Lakota families and communities, amongst others, but that was one I've spent really the most time with. And in the moment, I think I was seeking spiritual knowledge, I was seeking connection, connection to the earth, connection to community, uh, connection to wisdom. But eventually I've come to realize that part of what I was looking for unconsciously was I had this belief that they had not lost their connection to the earth and to deeper wisdom and spiritual traditions in ways that would teach me how to live with more connection and more harmony and more peace. And in some ways, I think that that is true. I have learned a lot of really valuable things from my relationships with indigenous folks and the ceremonies that they have shared with me. But I've also come to realize that part of this has come from the disconnection. One of the ideas in indigenous worldviews is that we all come from a place and we come from a people. And those of us that have grown up in suburban Western America have been told that we don't come from a place. We don't come from a people. We're just like everybody else. We're in this melting plot and everyone is equal. And we're all here doing the same thing to learn skills and work jobs and be good, productive people and consumers. That's not a very meaningful and compelling story. There has to be more to the story. I'm not saying that it, we should all quit our jobs and stop spending money. But there's got to be more to the story on why we're doing the work that we're doing than just to be a good consumer or to have more things or to be more successful or to be more comfortable. Most people think that they don't have a connection to the earth. And that comes from growing up in climate-controlled cars and houses and sidewalks that are made of concrete and roads of asphalt and and not knowing any of the names of the birds or the plants that grow and live all around. They're still there, even when we live in these disconnected, isolated boxes. But we have to make effort to learn about them and connect with them because it's not built into our culture. But for me, that's definitely been one of the things that has helped this feeling of disconnection is connection to the land in which I live. Now, I'm living in Colorado, and I was born in Florida. And I did have a lot of really beautiful connected practices wandering the swamps and forests near the house in which I grew up. I didn't know it or call it nature connection back then. I was just being a boy, exploring and playing and making up games and stories in the woods with my neighbor. And then eventually in adulthood, I grew to be really judgmental and didn't like the environment in Florida because it was so hot and humid and full of bugs and mosquitoes and traffic and all of these things and decided I would move to Colorado seeking the promised land, essentially, uh, the better place where I could really feel connected to the outdoors and got into rock climbing and backpacking and hiking and all those things that people in Colorado do. 
And there's been times in Colorado as the population has grown here where I've thought, oh, maybe I should move to the Pacific Northwest or, you know, back east somewhere where there's more lush green forest because I really miss that. And it's caused me to really reflect on how much of the moving around and the nomadic lifestyle that people engage in in this country could be more of people looking for their home or looking for the place that really feels good. At least I know it was for me, which is really different from the old traditional way that societies would work. If you knew your people and you knew your place, you might leave to go hunt or explore or do a job, but you always knew where you belonged. You always knew where home was and could always return there. We don't have that as much anymore in our current nomadic society. And occasionally I do still entertain fantasies of wanting to go live somewhere else, but mostly because I've engaged in a lot of connection practices and ritual in nature, I feel really connected and grounded here. And when I start to feel out of sorts, I can go and connect to the rocks and the trees in which I've formed relationship with. And I know that the land in which I live now is my home because I've intentionally made it my home. So I want to be really clear. I'm not necessarily advocating for psychodynamic theory that it all relates to our relationship with our mother and father, because I think it's actually bigger than that. It is a relationship to our mother and father that affects us a lot, but it's also our relationship to the earth itself and the human community as well, which it seems like we're getting more and more separated and disconnected from. But anyway, the point of all this is to invite us all to think about how actually we're all orphans. It's part of our shared cultural identity here in the West. And the traits of being an orphan don't just come from literally being an orphan. They come from this state of disconnection in all the ways that we can be disconnected. They're not often labeled as such, but we in this culture seem to really love orphan stories. Harry Potter, hugely popular, famous orphan. Luke Skywalker, hugely popular. Superman, another super popular story in our culture, another orphan. I invite you to think about all the shows and, and movies that you really like and see how many of them might actually have this orphan theme whether it's very direct and upfront or through some of the characteristics we're going to discuss in just a moment. So orphans often become either a hero or a villain. In our culture, we really love the idea of being a hero, being really great, really transcending the challenges of poverty, being the common everyday person that rises to greatness and really does great things in the world. That's part of what happens with the orphan archetype trying to escape the difficult traumatic upbringing that they had. The orphan is not necessarily the baby that was dropped off at the step and nobody knows the backstory. The orphan has a backstory defined by trauma, abandonment, abuse, neglect, feeling like an outsider, having to grow up quickly and be really responsible, successful, take care of themselves, independent, self-reliant. All of these are characteristics that a lot of us have identified with in our culture. I want to read to you some of the traits of the orphan archetype from dabblewriter.com. Whoever wrote this page says that the motivations of orphans are acceptance, connection, security, survival, and justice. The main fear of an orphan is abandonment. Positive qualities of the orphan are being perceptive, empathetic, especially towards the underdog, champions of justice and equality, inclined to do good when they find acceptance and stability, resourceful, resilient, hardworking, 
shortcomings of the orphan, too eager to please, can be manipulated due to the desire to fit in, may turn to the dark side, or may use trauma as an excuse for being how they are or being the worst. And qualities that can be neutral, good, or bad, orphans are often likely to rebel, trust peers above authority, and land somewhere on the spectrum between realist and cynic. Any of those traits sound familiar to you or people you know in your life? And I know what you're thinking. Well, those traits describe a lot of people, and I think that's exactly what my point is, is the impacts of our separation from our history, our identity as people, our connection to the land, connection to communities of humans that have shared ideals, I think are really impacting us and activating this orphan archetype in a lot of us. And this is problematic because when we don't naturally have this sense of self, this sense of identity, knowing who we are and where we belong, we seek it out and we project the things that we feel like we're missing, the things that we really need, the ideals that we aspire to onto others. I think that's one of the things that's been problematic with me and other people of white origin seeking out indigenous traditions is that we can then idealize them and think that, oh, they have it all figured out. But that's also only part of the story because part of our shared story as Americans and especially people that come from European descent is this shared genocide that has happened with the indigenous people of this continent. And so that genocide has been a trauma that has affected the indigenous people here as well. And I've come to see how we're really all in this together. It's not that they have it figured out and we need to just learn from them. And it's not that they need to just be white and get educated in our schools and adapt to being American, but rather we actually have to have this shared dialogue and experience of our humanity that can remedy the disconnection, which is ultimately one of the deepest illnesses. And it's not just the story of Americans and European settlers and Native Americans. As you've also heard in previous episodes, I've also had West African teachers and studied a bit of those cultures. And colonization happened there, too. And it happens all over the world. It's still happening. Colonization of dominant culture ideas clashing with older ideas is continuing this struggle. And so what I've learned in my journey is it's way overly simplistic to think that if we just all go back to the land or go back to where we came from or adapt one culture's way of thinking, whether that be indigenous or academic or scientific or religious, none of that is going to solve the problem. We have to find our way back into connection and belonging with a lot of difference, because that's definitely something that's true of nature. The more you connect with and study it, nature has infinite diversity and infinite difference and infinite structures of relationship, including predator and prey and cross-fertilization. There's all types of different types of relationships that happen in nature. I've often wondered, what would it be like to have born into an intact culture that had healthy, well-established societal systems, you knew who you were, you felt connected to your land, and you knew what your life was about? I think I shared in a previous episode, one of my teacher, Maladoma Somme, would tell the story of how when a baby was born, they would consult diviners who would do ritual to determine who the baby was that was in utero and why they were coming here. And a song would be created for the baby 
that would then be sung to the baby repeatedly in childhood and at times of life when the baby would lose their way, as we all do, especially in adolescence and early adulthood, they'd be reminded of who they are and why they were here. It's a beautiful story that first time I heard it really touched me. I was like, yes, I wish I knew that. But then, of course, you can easily see there's problems with that, too, because what if the individual has other ideas about what their life is going to be about and how is that honored and respected in a way that's supportive? So it's not that any of these things are answers, but how do we actually be in dialogue and in relationship with both who we are as individuals, who we are as a member of family, who we are as a member of community, who we are in relationship to our history and our ancestry, and have it all be a part of the conversation and the information rather than the disconnection that we seem to have where we focus on just one of these and pretend that the others are not factors. Another way to say what I'm really circling in this podcast episode is that orphaning isn't necessarily something that happens at one point in our lives when we are in childhood, but we orphan ourselves or disconnect ourselves from ourselves, from other people, from the land, often. One of the questions I love to ask couples when I'm counseling couples is, is what you're doing and saying right now bringing you two closer together or farther apart? And I'll follow that up with, do you want to be closer together or farther apart? Because maybe it is time to separate. Maybe the orphaning and the separation, the disconnection does need to happen at times when things are so unhealthy and so toxic that that is the only option. But I would argue that that usually is the go-to in our culture. I'm just going to disconnect and move on to something else or someone else, which to me, I hear as a product of our disposable throwaway consumer culture. But people and the planet are not that. If you've ever had the privilege of taking some of your trash or items directly to the landfill yourself, you realize really quickly that there really is no away. We like to think we're throwing something away when we drop it into a plastic bag and put it out at the curb and goes away and we never see it again. But it's just getting buried in the earth where it takes a really long time to decompose. And eventually it will decompose some of the things, not all of the things. But regardless, what if we realize there is no away? And the disconnect that we are doing a lot in our lives is an illusion. A lot of our ancestors came to this country willingly or unwillingly to get away from something else that was not pleasant. So what if we realize there is no away? Are we continuing to orphan ourselves or are we working to build closer, healthier relationships to all of the beings on this planet? I've been using this word indigenous, but most of you probably haven't looked up the definition or the etymology of it. And I recently encountered a definition that really stopped me in my tracks. Author of this book, Dancing Between Two Worlds, Fred Gustafson, who's now deceased, but was a Jungian analyst, and I had heard his name at the Sundance that I uh, attend at the Rosebud Reservation, who was a man of European descent, who really had a similar path that I've been walking 
of staying connected to the Western and European ancestry, as well as connecting with indigenous folks, defined the word indigenous as to be born from within. And I had to look that up because I thought, how did he possibly get that? But sure enough, the etymology from etymologyonline.com shows born or originating in a particular place, born in a country native from the Latin indigenia, sprung from the land, native, as a noun, a native, literally inborn, or born in, from the old Latin indu, in, within. So, in a way, I see how he made that jump. Indigenous means born from within. It also means what I've been talking about so far today, of knowing the place in which you come from, born and originating in a particular place. And that doesn't mean that just because we were born in a suburban neighborhood next to a strip mall, that we're not indigenous, because ultimately, the way I see it, our task in life is to really understand and connect with our inner and our outer world. In my opinion, indigenous people are not something that is different than us, but they carry that projection for us because they've maintained efforts to stay connected to their indigenous roots, despite the trauma and the hardship of genocide and colonization. To not be an orphan, to me, is to be indigenous. To not be an orphan is to be born from within, connected to the land, and realizing and maintaining that connection throughout life. It's not something that happens once, but it's something that happens over and over as we maintain and strengthen and repair those relationships rather than disconnecting and orphaning those relationships. It's a process that takes a tremendous amount of courage and faith to really look within and connect with that inner well, that inner source of guidance that we call our soul, especially in how that soul speaks to us through feelings and instincts. And then we have to use our rational brain to discern those feelings and instincts rather than blindly follow them or disconnecting from them. But in my opinion, reconnecting to that inner guidance so that we can be connected and born with in is what establishes our own healthy inner parent, our inner mother, our inner father. And that's what heals the orphan wound that most of us are carrying. So as I've said, my own journey in trying to heal my orphan wound has involved me in well over a decade, almost a decade and a half now with indigenous ceremonies of many flavors, but especially the sweat lodge, the vision quest and the Sundance. Occasionally, Western people have asked me about these experiences and wanted to get involved with some of these ceremonies, and they'll come for a ceremony or two and then disappear. And I've often wondered, why did I stay so long? And how come most people that I've introduced and encountered in other ceremonies don't stick it out that long? I'm sure there's a million answers to those questions, but a couple of the biggest ones I think might be how foreign those practices feel and how dangerous some of those practices feel, which are very counter to our desire for comfort and the safe, sanitized culture in which we've grown up in. And they feel so different and in our modern social justice-oriented society, we're all weary of cultural appropriation, rightly so. We don't want to take things that don't belong to us. That's part of the problem that caused the genocide in the first place. And so we're left with this 
big gap and disconnect and inner conflict, wondering if we truly have a right to be doing things like this. And in that gap and that disconnect, our minds and our egos make up a lot of stories about why we shouldn't continue to do it. And some of them might be perfectly valid. But do we stop going to yoga classes or taking Tibetan Buddhist meditation courses? Um, no, actually, a lot of those things have actually started to get integrated into mainstream healing culture and psychotherapy. And does that mean that we should not do that and go back to our European roots with Christianity or Judaism or the pagan traditions of Europe? I don't think that's true either. Because all of those have been in this dance of colonization or voluntary appropriation or forced appropriation. I don't think any of it is really that simple. Then there's the other factor that a lot of these ceremonies are really difficult. Uh, the ceremonies often include hours of extreme heat, no water, fasting, piercing of the skin, even house ceremonies last several hours late into the night in the pitch black, sitting on a hard floor with no food or no water. We're just not used to that level of discomfort and suffering in our everyday lives. For the most part, we spend a lot of time trying to avoid that discomfort and suffering and feel better and for, feel more comfortable and feel more relaxed and feel more peaceful which is great. Of course, those tools are fantastic and needed. But learning how to have peace in the face of difficulty is something I believe a lot of those ceremonies have offered. And again, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying everyone should go do these ceremonies. Really, if we look at ourselves in our own lives, we see that we actually are faced with difficulty and suffering every single day, physically and psychologically. And when we can be with that suffering and make meaning and know the intention of our suffering and what we can do about it, if anything, and what might just have to be accepted and moved forward or even potentially given up as an offering for uh, prayer or as a sacrifice for the people that we care about, we have the opportunity to have a similar process in our everyday suburban American lives. But this is different than the idea of most of our healing culture, both alternative and mainstream, that we're trying to end suffering. Most people that come into my office for the first time say something of I just want some tools to deal with this. And of course, tools do have a place in knowing how to relate to the challenges of our mind and the challenges of our lives. But tools to eradicate the difficulty and the suffering eventually become ineffective. Tools to learn how to live with and relate to the difficulty and the suffering are ultimately what I believe we're really looking for. And it's not so much a tool. A tool often causes more disconnect and more orphaning. Really what we're looking for is how do we relate to the challenges and the suffering. Another idea that I learned through my involvement with indigenous teachers and have really reflected on a lot over the years is it's all about relationship. In the indigenous world, this is talked about as relationship to all things, all beings, like the trees and the plants and the water and the earth and the air and all the animals and all the humans. But what I've come to understand more about that idea being a psychotherapist is it's actually about the relationship. So I ask people, how is your relationship? How is your relationship to yourself? 
How is your relationship to the people closest to you in your life? How is your relationship to your community? How is your relationship to your family of origin? How is your relationship to your ancestors? And on and on. It's about the how is the relationship and how do we tend to the relationship? What does the relationship need? And again, there's a million types of relationships. It's not that all relationships have to look and feel the same. Some relationships are simple and not as deep. Some relationships need to be deeper and on and on. But it really is about looking at and valuing the relationship that heals the orphan wound, not keeping distance and separation that perpetuates the orphan wound. When I was first in grad school, and then again more recently in the last five or six years as I've started studying depth psychology and depth psychotherapy, I encountered this idea that in the early 1900s and through the, I think, 60s and 70s maybe, psychotherapy was at least once a week at a minimum, and sometimes for multiple hours, sometimes multiple times a week. And when I first heard that idea, my first thought was, wow, what a recipe to set up dependence and codependence and what a privileged position to be able to afford all of that time and money. And that's just not practical or realistic or even helpful in today's society. I further would judge it saying, and should people be able to figure it out on their own anyway, or with their spouse or with their friends? or at least with just bi-weekly or monthly check-ins, and then they do the work on their own. Or what's popular in our modern culture is by signing up for the retreat or the workshop where I know that there's actually something that I want to work on and something that I want to get out of the experience. So I'll go do that, that thing that I really want. Can you hear some of the cultural and societal conditioning in those thoughts? I'm sure you've had some of the similar ones yourself. And in my story, totally unplanned by my ego, I found myself in analysis. I found my way there totally by accident because I was searching for a somatic therapist, but because I was one myself, I knew most of the good somatic therapists in town, so I couldn't work with any of them. And I found my way into the practice of someone who at least was trained in EMDR and I knew that I could do some of that work with my trauma. And she also coincidentally had been studying and training in Jungian psychotherapy. And at first I wanted to meet bi-weekly, but it wasn't really even bi-weekly because I would schedule bi-weekly, but if life was too busy or I didn't feel like I had anything to talk about, or I was too tired or stressed, or if I'm totally honest because I just wasn't ready to be that vulnerable, I would cancel. And so it would be maybe monthly at the most because I was kind of dedicated with a foot into the practice, but mostly as a, I'm going to do therapy when I want it, when I need it. And if it's convenient to me, and definitely not when I'm feeling good, because I never wanted to do therapy if I was feeling good, because I thought that that was going to stir things up and make me feel bad. So when I look back, I realize I was really just making excuses. I'm too busy. I'm too tired. Too much going on. I'm feeling fine. I don't need it right now. I'm just not in the mood to be vulnerable. I need a break. I'll, I'll do it when I feel like it. Can you hear some of the child-driven, ego-driven positions of everything I've been sharing about this. I want it only if I feel like it or the consumerist give me a product or experience that I want. And if it's not what I want, then I won't do it anymore or I'll leave a bad review or more to the point of this whole podcast episode, the orphan being disconnected from human relationship and valuing objects and objectives and goals over the relationship with another human being. 
Of course, it isn't even that simple. Uh, definitely growing up in a poverty-type environment, I also had a lot of issues with money and didn't want to spend money on myself for therapy. And as a male growing up in the South, I also had issues with intimacy and vulnerability, issues with commitment from a lot of things, not the least of which being being an orphan. It was really only after submitting to the process and being honest with my therapist analyst of what it was like and why I was choosing to cancel or not be vulnerable and what I thought of her and the feelings and thoughts that were coming up in the relationship that I realized how showing up week after week, whether I felt like it or not, gets past the ego and the societal conditions and the orphan archetype patterns to really engage in the relationship and really value the relationship and how that relationship is actually what's transformative. Not having the known goal and the outcome and the plan, but engaging in the relational process. And I do have to add here that as I've been flushing out these ideas with my partner, Kelly, she was quick to point out that it's not quite as simple as that, because how do you know that you're sticking it out with a person or a therapist that is not worth engaging in the relational process with because they don't have the training or the experience or they're trying to insert too much of themselves and their own beliefs in there? And it's a really fair point. The last thing I want is for you or me or for anyone to spend a lot of time and money on something that's not helpful for you. So there's actually not a real clear answer other than knowing the person is trained and experienced and credentialed and has their accountable to and seeing supervision or mentorship with. Those are some of the easy things to look for. But then ultimately to realize that it is a developmental process that is hopefully eventually going to lead you back to this indigenosity of being connected and born from within and able to discern for yourself that, yeah, maybe this person is the right step for right now because they have a knowledge or a skill that I know that I need. And later on will be the person that can hold the bigger, broader container that can really meet me wherever I'm at, not just within the one domain that I'm looking for the assistance with. So it's a complicated question. And of course, have to name and honor the fact that you don't have to get it right. You can make mistakes, and those mistakes also are going to be healing and informative, as we've been talking about with the guests on previous episodes. But ultimately, the goal is to be able to connect with and honor the relationship first and foremost with yourself, and then with the people in your life, especially those that you are interesting to help you guide you deeper into yourself and deeper and farther down your life path. So the last thing I want to share in this episode is how so many of us, people of privilege especially, myself included, who are going from workshop to workshop and training to training, seeking this experience and that experience, uh, yoga classes, perhaps even the psychedelic movement that's happening now, are going from thing to thing, looking for the thing that's going to heal them and make them whole, which I believe is really, at least partly related to this healing of our orphan wound, this healing of the broken family, not having the sense of connection and belonging. And because of our consumer culture, we believe that we are going to get a product or an experience or a teaching or the wisdom of a leader that really is supposed to have been coming from the elders in our community. But this wisdom really is what transpires in the connection and in the relationship 
between these people and the roles that they're holding. And those roles are different than the human that they are. And this is all complicated by the fact that we've all been moving around, recreating and reinforcing and even creating more distance and separation, especially physically, so that we don't have connection to our families and our elders and the people and communities that we even did have. And this results in placing all the power and value and privilege on the young and on the individual. But I believe that this is a mistake, that life is not easy, and growing old requires a lot of experience and hard-fought lessons and initiations, whether they've been intentional, held in a ritual way, or just life happening to us. And those initiations can be meaningless if we don't look at the meaning and integrate them. Or they can be extremely meaningful, even if they weren't held in an intentional way to start with, such as a graduation or even, say, a car accident has been an initiation for people. The, the loss of someone close to us is an initiation. When we can integrate the lessons and the meaning from these experiences through the relationship with those experiences and the people that can help us integrate it, we then gain a lot of wisdom and a lot of value as elders. And don't misunderstand me saying that like only elders are the ones that have gone through this process and the elders that we don't connect to and we lock away in nursing homes are not valuable. That's not true either. Because one of the beautiful things I've experience from going up to the reservation is how every elder is really valued, whether they have a lot of ceremonial or ritual knowledge or experience or not, because all of the life experience is valued. As orphans, what we need most is healthy adults and elders that can hold space for us and reflect for us who we are, not who they want us to be, not who society or culture tells us to be, or who they need us to be. And so continuing to engage in those relationships, even if somebody gives us advice or feedback that doesn't fit, having the relationship is still better than not having the relationship and working to heal that orphan wound. And then it's up to us to say, oh, that didn't really fit or feel true, but I'm really grateful that I was able to share this time with the person. This is one of the most difficult things for us as orphans in this culture and society is that it gets really hard to hear our own voice when sometimes that voice gets mistaken from the interjects of the ego, what we want, our society, our cultural heritage or religious or spiritual heritage. And we can mistake those messages as our own soul and our own guidance, and they may or may not be. And so the work of discerning that voice is probably one of the most difficult ongoing tasks in our lives, and I can't tell you how to do it, but it's why you've heard me say a few times in this podcast, one of the measures that I have found to be really useful is that if the voice is telling us how much we're going to gain or produce or how much better we're going to be or how we're going to move on and never look back, I get really skeptical because those sound a lot like the stories of our culture and of the orphaning and the moving on that is a part of our shared ancestral heritage. But if the voice is directing us more towards wholeness, integration of a lot of difference and diversity within ourselves, or more connection. Those voices that help us to feel like we are already whole and valuable, and we already have something of meaning and value to offer, it's not something we have to continue to seek, those might be voices worth listening to a little bit more. So there you go. 
that's going to be it for today. Hope you have really connected and understood with why the orphan origin of my life has really mattered to me. And I hope it really encourages you to reflect on how the orphan story and archetype might have been present in your life, might be present in your life. And if it's not, then great, good for you. You have a totally different story. What is your origin? And how has that shaped you? And how has that created wounds for you, as well as given you gifts? But either way, you don't find those gifts by ignoring your origin and ignoring the past, rather continuing to walk the delicate balance of relationship of past and present so that we can have a future that includes much more healthy relationship and healthy connection. And that's my wish for you in the new year, healthy relationship, healthy connection, balance, and a life of meaning and fulfillment. Thank you for listening to My Life is the Medicine. We hope our guest story this week has inspired you to look closer at your own life. Maybe you heard some of your own story and their story through many of these experiences are common, ordinary experiences. And maybe something about their story was unique, which also might have inspired you to think about how your life, too, is unique. Either way, we hope our story today has helped you to see that your life, too, is the medicine. If you'd like to consider diving deeper into your own story and sharing your story with others, we hope you might consider joining us on a future episode. And if not, that's okay, too. We hope you'll continue listening, keep reflecting, and help you see how your life, too, is the medicine. Take good care, and we'll see you next time.